Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. To create thought around Yom HaShoah, known in English as Holocaust Remembrance Day, I offer you an archive edition with Ralph Applebaum, the designer of the United States Holocaust Museum, located in Washington, D.C., which opened in April 1993, when this program was recorded. When Ralph Applebaum and I were Peace Corps volunteers together in the mid-1960s, living in nearby towns of southern Peru, we often shared our future plans. This interview shares the story of one of Ralph's plans, which he manifested on a material plane about 30 years later. Applebaum says that a museum's architecture should focus on the experience by creating time and space events. In the United States Holocaust Museum, Applebaum's design depicts the suffering, torture, and death of millions of people during World War II in Europe on land controlled then by fascist Nazis. He also directs attention to the responsibility of bystanders. Please keep in mind that this interview was recorded in April 1993. That was when Ralph Applebaum and I visited by phone from his loft in New York City. We began when I asked him to describe his vision of a museum designer. designers do is uh, they are really the architects of the experience. Um, their job is to take the curatorial information, the artifacts, the uh, interpretive materials of the show, and uh, create a, a time and space event, uh, create a walkthrough experience um, that places before the visitor in a series of environments, oftentimes metaphorical environments, um, uh, uh, the story using communication devices, two and three dimension design elements, so that the visitor, by the time they move through the space, uh, gets a sense of uh, what the uh, interpretive story is about. I I'm talking particularly about interpretive museums, not art museums, but museums that are essentially uh, storytelling museums. In this uh, case, does the architect then follow the direction of the designer in setting up the pathways and the structure? Um, it happens in in many different formats. Oftentimes, the building is given to the designer. Uh, uh, other times, the designer works in collaboration with the architect because together they've developed a, a program or a master plan that sets forth the, the approach philosophy of the specific exhibit and its and its in, in, its communication goals. Uh, in the instance of the Holocaust Museum, uh, the basic building was uh, designed. Uh, spaces were uh, defined as uh, permanent ex exhibition spaces, and we worked together with the architects to modify those spaces and adjust them to fit the uh, story requirements or design opportunities that occur as you start.
Well, start telling us the story, if you would. Uh, what does a visitor uh, see or receive when they come into the Holocaust Museum? Well, one of the challenges of doing a museum like the Holocaust Museum is that it is probably the only non-celebratory museum uh, in the U.S. Uh, most of our museums are essentially celebratory. They are uh, really prideful symbols of, uh, of, of wealth. Uh, they contain wonderful uh, objects. But the Holocaust Museum is really a museum about uh, a black hole in, in human society. It's uh, uh, rather a place filled with really evil things. Um, interestingly, when the museum first uh, got funded uh, during the Carter administration and was given by an act of Congress, um, the only thing that the museum uh, had in its collection uh, were really the contents of people's pockets, things that people escaped with from the kids. Um, and uh, when I first saw these, I realized it was very difficult to really make a, a contextual environment with these highly charged small pieces, a small star that someone wore, or an ID card, or a little something that they made while, while in And so the very first effort uh, was to go to Europe and try to follow the trail uh, of both of the per perpetrators and the victims, and also the path of the bystander, because the whole dynamic of this story is about the responsibility of bystanders. Um, since the event really occurred with the acquiescence of the bystander. Um, so we move through Europe. I say we because doing an exhibit is a very complex and collaborative effort. And while I bring to it the ability to convert information to a this kind of the time and space experience that I mentioned before into a into a built environment. Um, it's filled with uh, films and filled with all other uh, technologies. And I traveled with a filmmaker um, uh, by the name of Martin Smith, who uh, uh, did, did the films uh, "Struggles for Poland" and uh, "World at War," which have been PBS, and he. Um, really acted as a curator because he knew what the film archives contained, what, what the visual archives contained. We finally decided because of the circumstances of what was happening in Eastern Europe to field uh, uh, photo research in all 20 some odd countries that were affected by the war to try to find images to create the museum that people weren't accustomed to, which we, we collected about 20,000 photographs and they're extraordinary in their fresh including a lot of color film, because ACFA was making color film in the late 30s, and, uh, and so the Germans used color film. So it, it brings a lot of the events uh, of ghetto life and just the whole process up close. Uh, what happens when you enter the museum is that you register your gender and your age in, a, um, in, a, in what looks like a, a very simple mean rather mean vending machine uh, and out comes an, uh, an ID card uh, the ID card is of someone your age and your gender and you uh, see the person's picture you find out a little bit about them and you take this card with you as you move through the museum after each floor of the museum uh, you're able to update your card 
events unfolded uh, during during the war. The exhibit is organized as a play in three acts, with the very first act um, uh, really being the, the really dealing with the assault, the, the rise of fashion. Um, as you enter the museum, you go through it in a very you go through the rise of fashion highly held way. Almost a third of the museum is devoted to that. The middle floor is the story of the Holocaust um, and the various uh, uh, ways that the Holocaust enacted what was enacted through the roundup of people in Western Europe. They were put in detention camps in uh, Norway and Holland and France, particularly. Um, the ghettoization of uh, Jews in Eastern Europe. Um, there were over 400 ghettos. Uh, those ghettos eventually were concentration points from which Jews were then shipped to the killing centers. And then the work of the uh, Einsatzgruppe
especially especially one that killed this many. Uh, the, the, the numbers are somewhere, uh, depending on who you talk to, between a total number of nine and 11 million. Some people say 12 million killed within the system. Um, out of that, six million uh, were, were were Jews, and the others were Soviet POWs of about three million. Jehovah Witnesses, uh, gays, and uh, what they called uh, other undesirables, uh, political prisoners. Homosexuals were particularly, uh, it was a particularly brutal uh, 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 organizing, collecting, and concentrating of them. They were always marked even within, within the system, but that everyone had a, a color-coded triangle in the system, so you always knew why anyone was, was there. Ralph Applebaum is the designer of the United States Holocaust Museum, located in Washington, D.C., which opened in April 1993 when this program was recorded. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Ralph, um, what is your opinion of the reasons why the Germans documented what they did so carefully with films and other records? I can't really tell you exactly why. I can tell you that um, they thoroughly documented everything because they had the power of law and uh, behind them. Um, they uh, were very orderly and uh, as I said, it was, a, it was a bureaucratic crime. It was a crime that required an enormous base of bureaucratic murders. Even, even some of the killers in the Einsatzgruppen um, were people who were doctors and lawyers and professional people who um, got involved in this type of uh, a very direct uh, murder uh, because they wanted to do better within the, in the high hierarchy of, uh, because they believed they were creating the Thousand Year Reich. And um, in fact, had planned a whole series of museums of uh, artifacts of the lost races, uh, particularly the the uh, Jews and gypsies. Although Hitler had a, a small sen- sentimental feeling for German gypsies, and they were uh, all killed later. But um, the you know the very interesting part of it is that at the point of the invasion of Poland. Uh, when Poland was was invaded, Germany started a euthanasia program in its own hospitals, um, using a cadre of people called T4. These these people basically murdered um, through uh, injection uh, in hospitals throughout Germany. Uh, the mentally retarded and the handicapped and the chronically ill. Uh, these were German nationals. And they were simply taken out because they were just inferior members of, of, of the society. Um, there were really two layers of killing. There were killing of undesirables. But then there was really the war against women and children, which, which is the Holocaust and the, and, and the real act of genocide performed against Jews and gypsies. Um, these people were killed so that they couldn't. Read um, and we you know, the exhibit in fact goes in, in, into detail about how uh, racial theory was uh, developed and how it was taught and the kinds of laws they created to begin isolating their own citizens, ultimately decitizenizing them because they were 
citizenized, no one else could handle them. And then in the, uh, I guess, the uh, infamous conference at Evian when the Western democracies tried to see if they could save any of Eastern European Jewry and found that they couldn't. Um, these people were uh, stuck in Europe without belonging to country and no a Western country wanted them, except uh, the Dominican Republic, in fact, who, who, uh, uh, who took people in, but uh, no one else did. Ralph, Tell us about the reactions to the museum in the first few days that it's been open. Uh, does it uh, truly drive up the blood pressure of uh, the people who see it? Do they leave upset? Uh, how how do, are they reacting? Well, because, well, one, there are, of course, people are very, very moved. We, uh, we tried very hard to avoid making it hokey, making it gimmicky and in fact the exhibit is based on on being an ev- evidentiary presentation of materials with with a lot of detail we were very concerned about the revisions and the, and the deniers of uh, the event and so the the exhibit was uh, was very heavily loaded with a lot of scholarship and particularly a lot of tangible physical evidence um, by the time people leave they realize that the event that that the Nazis depended on the acquiescence of bystanders to, to make this happen and the abandonment of these people by not only their neighbors and their fellow countrymen uh, but also by all of the other countries um, allowed them to be murdered um, people leave and they realize that these events are happening today um, they are they talk a lot about Bosnia they talk about what they can do what they're supposed to do how in fact helpless they feel and how impotent they feel these are the people who uh, leave the museum and talk on their way out who are, who are asked they're, they're of course profoundly upset because they have followed a single soul through the museum who is of their own age. And they, by the end of the exhibit, which takes between three and five hours to go through, it's very lengthy um, and probably should, should be done uh, at the longer period so that you see the full range of films. There are over 70 short films and three, um, well, two 10, 12-minute film and one one hour and a half film. That is part of the whole experience. The exhibit culminates with an hour and a half worth of testimony where for the first time you meet survivors of, of the event, which very conscious decision not to mix those survivors in earlier in, into the story because we really wanted the the macro story to be told very, very methodically and carefully. Uh, people, uh, I think, uh, well, I find uh, everything. Uh, and watching people walk out, I see moments of ten- tenderness. Uh, people hug their kids, rough, ruffle their child's hair if they if they're in with with a young person. Although the exhibit was designed for children over eleven or twelve, we we did a lot of psychological testing, had a lot of advisors, and finally decided we would put all horrific material, of which there's an extraordinary catalog. We didn't use a lot of it, but we put it all behind.
behind privacy walls, in other words, walls that are about four feet high, so that only children over uh, 11 or 12, in fact, hear over the walls down into a well where the video monitor playing the evidence is located. Can you describe some of that evidence that is not uh, seen by uh, children less than four feet high? Yes. Um, there's essentially three uh, categories. The first um, is the work of the Einsatz group and then their accomplices. These are uh, filmed and photographed scenes of humiliation, uh, rape, uh, and murder that um, were uh, taken by uh, bystanders to, to, to the events. Uh, these are mainly uh, happened in uh, small towns where neighbors simply uh, pulled whole fa families out and uh, stripped them, uh, brutalized them. Um, the, it's shocking because it has a, a kind of uh, simplicity and freshness to the young soldiers who were, uh, of course, it was before uh, the armies really got mired down in, in, in Russia. This was their, the opening, the Eastern Front, a lot of enthusiasm. And uh, did, did you say that neighbors do this to neighbors? Uh, yeah, townspeople um, back the fascists and uh, participated in, in these events. On their own or at the uh, direction of the fascist armies? Well, it was known that in many many of the countries of, East, of Eastern Europe, the, the, there were sides were only to, local people were only too willing to join the German cause. In some cases, such as the uh, um, uh, Ustashi, the secret police in uh, in, uh, in, in in Croatia, uh, were even more violent, and there were reports sent back to Berlin from the Nazi troops saying that they were hard to control. I mean, wanted to keep it rather neat and didn't like it to get too too messy in a way, which is one of the reasons why Kristallnacht only happened once. They didn't like the idea of wild, enthusiastic Nazis running around the streets and sort of disrupting the public way. And it's amazing that they, they had the power to stop it for only that one night and then found much more... Uh, uh, Careful and organized ways to kill people. Ralph, uh, generally in your work as a museum designer, my understanding is that you don't uh, work on the dark, interpreting the darker side of human society, uh, but rather you are more in, in what you call the celebratory type of museum work. Um, what are the similarities between a celebratory museum? and uh, this darker side of human society museum, the Holocaust Museum? Well, they, they all depend on the use of uh, metaphor and uh, that you're trying to create a, a spatial context within which to tell the story. They use the same set of, of uh, tools, language, in other words, copy on the walls, photographs, films, images, artifacts, um, a movement through a through through space. They they share that, but uh, I think the reason why we've had so many celebratory type museums is that museums have never been willing to really face the real story in their exhibition 
pro program. It's very rare that you go to an anthropology museum that you have any consciousness that Native American culture, for instance, still exists. Uh, the, the collection usually ends at the turn of the century, and somehow the story ends after kind of uh, a wonderful sort of ex exploration daily life and their religious beliefs and how they farmed and how they made coiled pots, what you really, all of a sudden it ends and you don't really know where, whether there is a living culture uh, and you don't know what that culture, how that culture has adapted to a colonization, how it's adapted to uh, integrating itself within our society. And uh, it's one of the real problems with most museums. They, they're, they've been in such a battle for people's discretionary time and people's discretionary income that they've chosen softer subjects. For instance, it's rather extraordinary that there's no uh, exhibit in a science museum uh, devoted to, to AIDS, uh, that, uh, devoted to the Im immunization system, uh, devoted to... Uh, uh, there's very few permanent exhibits I know of. I'm not sure there are any on devoted to the real story of uh, American in Indian life and cultural change and what's happened to them. There's, very, there, there's no real solid stories within, within the museum environment dealing with the slave Ralph, um, we have just a few minutes left, and um, I know that you were involved in setting up the uh, interpretation of the museum at Ellis Island, and I wonder if you could name just one or two others of the more significant uh, museums that, you, in your mind, that you've been involved in, Then I want to ask you a question about the Holocaust Museum and those. Well, our, our museums have been very varied. We're currently uh, doing the National Museum of New Zealand, which is a very interesting project because it's a bicultural museum. It's half Maori and, and half Western. And both the architecture as well as the exhibit program and the interpretive program will reflect both Western views and non-Western museums, uh, Western construct. Uh, we've also been working on the National Museum of uh, uh, Australia in, uh, in Mel Melbourne. We've done about 100, 120 projects since I uh, started. Uh, they range from traveling shows to now more serious permanent exhibits. We're currently redoing the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, there are the dinosaurs. All of our museums are in the area of social and cultural history and natural history. Well, comparing um, the previous work you have done to uh, your work with, in the Holocaust Museum, What's your reaction to the Holocaust Museum? Well, my own reaction is that I'm, I'm amazed it's there. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed it exists. I'm amazed the country had the guts to put the museum in place because the American story is told very openly and honestly, and it's not a very positive story. While it provided a home for the survivors, it really didn't do anything during, during the war other, other, other than be fashion. Uh, but it didn't bomb the railroad tracks, which was asked for many times, and uh, it couldn't provide uh, a safe haven. Uh, those of you who know about the Wagner-Rogers uh, Bill of 39, which died in the Senate, uh, was a bill that was uh, uh, a wonderful bill to save 20,000 children, and it could not pass and did not pass. Ralph Applebaum, uh, designer of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to talk to you, Barry. This Radio Curious archive interview with Ralph Applebaum 
the designer of the United States Holocaust Museum, located in Washington, D.C., was recorded in May 1993. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org, and the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Amistad is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.